wife drove two and a half hours for me to get here, so very glad in that. Thank you. And we'll drive two and a half hours home. She prefers to drive. Might have something to do with my driving. I like to think that she just likes the fact that I get to study and read books and other things. When the kids were really small, it was about me keeping the kids happy. And uh, that was a good division of labor. Now I think I'm just reaping all the benefit or something, getting to read as she drives. So um, we did. Uh, we are. I am a pastor in Booth Bay region. Uh, we live now in Edgecombe. Last time I saw you, last time we were with you, uh, we were living in Prospect. So not quite so far from here, from your beautiful town and place here. And um, we helped that church get started. They started last December. In fact, next Sunday will be their one year anniversary. I see that it's your 225th year anniversary. We'll, we, we, we will not catch you, and, um, but uh, we will uh, we'll try to be faithful to that long history. Um, we were with them, and I was going to be with that church for six months, helping them get off the ground in our work with Multiply Maine. And um, around about March, they asked me to stay, and I, being somewhat obtuse at times, said, well, I, we could stay a little longer. How, how long would you like us to stay? And our elders said, um, well, we'd like you to stay permanently and be our pastor. To which I replied, uh, oh. And, um, <laughs> and I, I went home and told uh, Caroline about that. And um, she said, did you say yes? Did, are we saying yes? And, and uh, I said, well, I told them I would pray about it. And um, she said, but we're going to say yes, right? And we did say yes, and very glad to. It's good to be grounded in that congregation. And uh, what a joy to get to preach in series every week. Um, and uh, to be with those folks who are so very supportive of our, our ministry, uh, planting churches and helping churches start churches throughout Maine. And uh, what a joy just to be with them every week. And so we'll be scooting out of here, as we did last time, pretty quickly to get uh, back in the car and drive back down there for our service, which is at 4 o'clock. In the afternoon, uh, when your pastor told me he was going to be away this week and uh, at the end of December and asked me to preach, he said, you know, there just aren't that many uh, solid guys, I think was the way he put it. I don't know what he means by that. Um, solid guys who uh, are available to preach uh, on Sunday morning, uh, at which point I realized there are hundreds and hundreds of men who he would have preferred to have asked, but I was the only one whose church doesn't meet on Sunday morning. And so uh, that worked out very well. So we're uh, glad to be with you and glad to be back with you in a month or so. And uh, and that will be great. Thank you for your hospitality this morning. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. When I spoke with your pastor regarding his work with the Gospel Alliance... And he asked me to be involved with that. I asked if I might serve in partnership with this coalition of churches uh, to keep mission on the front burner of our conversations and our convictions. Uh, He was glad for me to do that, and uh, so I shall. That is uh, what we feel like our calling is in Maine specifically, both with our ministry, Multiply Maine, uh, which seeks to see that there is a church preaching and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in every community in Maine, uh, and in my work as the pastor uh, of Anchor Church in Booth Bay, uh, a community where 97% of our people there do not know Christ, where we have 8,900 year-round residents um, and less than 300 Christians from what we can tell. Um, God has compelled me to keep teaching and exhorting the church 
uh, in the churches to share the gospel with those around them uh, who do not yet believe. So I'm glad to be back with you, and I look forward to being with you again at the end of December. Uh, that Sunday, uh, your pastor asked me to share in Sunday school that day about our ministry and have a conversation with you about church planning and evangelism and uh, our ministry and your ministry in that and, uh, and to preach in the service, the second part of this message. And so I'll do the first part today and then uh, we'll do the second part of this from 2 Timothy chapter 2 uh, at the end of December. Why this passage of scripture at this time of year? Next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, this time of year, everyone seems to acknowledge the birth of Christ. For some of you, you delight in that. For some of you, it's very frustrating to you because people who want nothing to do with Jesus uh, any other month of the year, suddenly one month, one twelfth of the year, are delighted to sing songs like Joy to the World and Hark the Herald Angels Came, even if they get the doctrine and the chronology wrong. We see it in the store decorations. We see hear it in the songs on the radio, the holiday gatherings. But not everyone who acknowledges Christ this time of year is a follower of Jesus Christ. We know that this is true. Even in the church, we confuse acknowledgement or knowledge of Christ with obedience to Christ. Our bar is very, very low. And why is it that in China, new believers are sent out as evangelists and church planners, and here we don't see that happening nearly as often? Why is it that in Africa we hear of whole villages dispersing to surrounding towns as missionaries, and we wouldn't think of doing that here? Our bar is very, very low. Quite honestly, very little is expected of us from one another. Um, Our expectations of ourselves, for ourselves, do not match the commission and the power that God has given us through Christ So here in Paul's final instructions to a young pastor, I pray that in these two we would find a charge for people that are supposed to look very different than the world around us. As the world looks more and more ungodly, uh, and this time of year when many have the appearance of godliness but deny its power, may we look more and more and be more and more like Christ who came, he said, to seek and save that which was lost. Now, in the, in the rest of this final chapter of this letter to Timothy, Paul relates the whereabouts of some of their former laborers, colleagues, some of whom are faithful like Luke and some not so faithful like Demas, and some of whom we don't know, quite frankly, whether they were faithful or not, like Crescens or Titus, though we can assume from what we know of Titus that both he and Crescens are faithfully on missionary assignment elsewhere in the world. Now, we have this happen too. This time of year, many of you receive Christmas cards or Christmas letters from people. My mother doesn't even try now to get them out by the end of the year. She sends hers in January unapologetically and has done so for quite a long time. There's just too much going on in the Christmas season. But when I receive the Christmas letter about us and all my other siblings, I am amazed at what we have done. (laughs) We are fantastic people and have accomplished quite a lot. Thank you. According to my mother's Christmas letter. Um, so we do this too, and, um, and we might inflate the truth a little bit or hit the highlights and push all of the, uh, the ugly stuff out to the fringes. It doesn't make it on the page. Um, but this is uh, sort of what we find here. Paul is letting them know what happened with these other men that served with them at one time or another. Uh, Paul comes to Mark and he says to Timothy regarding him, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me. For ministry. Now, we know that Paul and Mark had a falling out, though that Paul thought Mark was timid or weak in commitment because Mark, John called Mark, John being the Jewish name and Mark being the the Greek name, 
Uh, we probably have that to differentiate him so we don't confuse him with the other disciple, John, and the name by which we know him best. Uh, he withdrew from missionary work in Pamphylia, and I quote Acts 15, which says, had not gone with them to the work. And that because of, of this, Paul refused to take him on his trip to encourage the churches in every city where they had preached. This resulted, as you know, in a lot of fallout with Barnabas, Mark's cousin, leaving Paul as well in order to take Mark to Cyprus, where Barnabas was martyred, and Paul choosing Silas and leaving for Syria and other places. Just after this, as recorded in Acts 15, Paul enlists a young Greek man named Timothy to travel with him. So here we come full circle, and now Paul is asking Timothy, who he's trained for ministry, who's like his son in the faith, to get Mark and bring him because Mark is useful. Ironically, just to connect to another character in another one of Paul's letters, the Greek word for useful is Onesimus, which of course is the name of the slave and the subject of Paul's letter to Philemon. But that's a sermon for another day. Uh, in the end, Mark is found faithful and of course, as we know, was inspired by God to write the wonderful gospel account. So here we have a young man. How many of you are young men? Thank you. I saw that, Ted. That's great. Very good. Um, yeah, that's good. I think that's wonderful. If you, It's all relative, right? Compared to Methuselah, we're all young men, right? So we have a young man called to missionary service who stepped away but came back and ended well. And we have another young man who has some doubts and some fears, uh, perhaps many of the same traits that Mark had. And Paul is addressing those with great passion, probably some of which came from his prior experience and disappointment with Mark. Disappointment from Mark shrinking back and disappointment with the way that he, Paul, handled it. And disappointment, I think, over losing his friend Barnabas to persecution and martyrdom as a result of it. There were consequences to their actions, and so Paul is very serious about this whole incident and about the men in whom he invests his time and energy. And so he charges Timothy this charge in the presence of God, it says, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Now, it doesn't get any more serious than that, to charge someone in that way with all of those those things there. So let's just take a, a Selah moment, we might call it, and pause and reflect on this preamble to that charge. We are in the presence of God right now. We live by the grace of Christ Jesus, and He will judge the living and the dead, including us. His appearing and His kingdom are the central reality of world history and of eternity. And on these things, Paul lays this charge. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, and if you need a title to feel organized about things, you can put that down as the title of this sermon. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul's being very emphatic, very serious as he coaches and leads this young man. 
As Barnabas helped to train Paul and Mark was his apprentice and then Barnabas was martyred. So Paul is training Timothy, his apprentice, and sees his own death coming soon. He wants to get this right. For I am being poured out like a drink offering, he says, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And I look forward to my reward, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So there's a lot there. And we don't have time this week, this morning, to do justice to all that. So I want to focus in just on verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Four things. What we have there is four commands, four facets of one great commandment from Jesus in Matthew 22 and Luke 10. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and with all your strength. So first, always be sober-minded. Not exactly the time of year when we're thinking sober-mindedly. It's pretty much fun, right? From Thanksgiving till the end of the year. We have three Holidays at Thanksgiving time, we had three uh, young gentlemen, students at Lincoln Academy, international students, one from Rwanda, one from Turkey, and one from the Bahamas who uh, came and ate uh, dinner with us on Thanksgiving. It was a delight to have them with us. And uh, they were asking me about Thanksgiving and about Christmas and other holidays. And I said, well, it's pretty much holidays from now till the end of the year. We tend to be in a celebratory tone. So sober-mindedness, maybe not the first thing, on our minds this time of year. Now, he doesn't say somber-minded. Not somber-minded. This does not mean being sorrowful all the time or joyless or stoic. It says sober. We use that word to mean not drunk. And that certainly is good counsel. That's a very good place to start. It is very hard for drunk people to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Okay? So if you think that's the point of the message today, you're wrong, but that's a good thing to get. Okay, so uh, it, it, it means not drunk. You can't walk in a manner worthy of Christ if you're drunk. For that matter, it's hard for drunk people to walk in a straight line either. So don't don't do that. Don't get drunk. That would be one interpretation of this passage, but I think it's that would be missing it. But it doesn't say sober. It says sober minded. So if sober means your body is unaffected or undistracted or uncorrupted by alcohol or addictive substances, then sober-minded means keeping your mind unaffected or undistracted or uncorrupted by whatever might corrupt or distract the thoughts as alcohol does the body. Now, the dictionary defines sober as not intoxicated or drunk, quiet or sedate in demeanor. Children, your parents would... Wouldn't mind if you were that on occasion. Marked by seriousness, gravity, solemnity, etc. Subdued in tone or free from excess, extravagance or exaggeration or showing self-control. All of those may be helpful, I think, to the Christian mind. William Law, the great 17th century Anglican priest and writer, says it this way. He says, we see such a mixture of ridicule in the lives of many people. You see them strict as to sometimes and places of devotion. But when the service of the church is over, they are but like those that seldom or never come there. In their way of life, their manner of spending their time or money in their cares and fears, in their pleasures and indulgences, in their labors and diversions, they are like the rest of the world. Let me put it one more way. Now that we've gone to the 17th century, let's just bring it right up to today, 
How in the world do we look different from the rest of the people that are humming Silent Night this year? That's what sober-minded means. It means that we as Christians should not only think differently, but that that would convey itself to our outer thoughts and words. I think this is what Paul means here. He's telling Timothy to be a serious man of God. He uses the word sober again in his first letter to the church at Thessalonica. He says to them, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Peter uses the same word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1 15. And again, he says in 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We're to be serious Men and women, not somber men and women, but serious-minded men and women, holy and set apart for serious things, for prayer and for the Word, for training up children and younger Christians in the fear and admonition of the Lord, for taking the Gospel to the ends of the earth or the end of the street. And all of this with hope and with serious joy. We're not to be frivolous or foolish, caught up in excess or the extravagance of the world. We're to be self-controlled, not given over to sin or self-indulgence, but to set our minds on things above, drunk not on wine or food or shopping or television or video games or sports or retirement accounts or travel, but focused like a laser on Christ and the things of Christ. Finding our pleasure and our passion and our purpose in Christ. Sober-minded, serious things-minded, important stuff Minded, God-minded. Now, if you need a practical exercise for this, let me recommend that you meditate on the preamble to the charge that Paul made to Timothy at the beginning of this passage. Let me read it again. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing and His kingdom. Just as Aaron just had us praying through Psalm 22, meditating on that portion of the Word, I would encourage you to do this with that brief Preamble, meditate on the presence of God that is mentioned there. Think on the person of Jesus Christ. Consider the prominence of His coming judgment. Study on the pleasure and the pain, for many, of His appearing. And let yourself be amazed by the power of His kingdom. This is a worthy meditation for those of us who would want to be serious-minded. And you'll find yourself fulfilling Paul's charge to Timothy. Where do preachers come from? Where do they come from? Where do godly parents who preach and teach the gospel to their children come from? Or Bible study teachers or missionaries. They're simply people who are so filled up with the truth of who God is that they cannot contain it. It's a really good thing that I get to preach every Sunday now. It's a really good thing for my children that I have this outlet to get to do that. Some of you might think the same thing about Pastor Blake, but we won't talk about him because he's away. Isn't it good that we 
get the opportunity to do this because the idea is that we would be so filled up uh, with the truth of who God is and excited about that that we would be unable to contain it. It's got to go somewhere. And God's plan is that it goes for the proclamation of the gospel, not only to the church, but also to the world. They have to preach in season and out of season and reprove and rebuke and exhort. It's who they are. And they can do it with patience and teaching because they've set their minds on these things and the answers are there for the seeking and there's joy in the seeking. Those who truly know God always want to make Him known. And it should bother us that there are so many people that are singing silent nights about the birth of Christ who don't know the significance of the birth of Christ. It should bother us that Two years ago, I was in a duet with a guy over in Bucksport at the community carol sing, which we were involved in leading. We were leading. I mean, we were pretty much it, you know, and we met up on the top of this hill and the whole community came out and we were able to lead these these wonderful carols and hymns. And at one point, this gentleman leaned over and started singing with me. He said, uh, he said, how about we sing Oh Holy Night? We sang Oh Holy Night. Now, I know for a matter of fact that he does not really consider that night holy. He doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Why would he care? He doesn't care about the content of the song. He just likes the tune. And so there we sang this duet. What an odd scene that those of us who are followers of Christ are singing along with those who have nothing to do with Christ except to offend him at every step with every kind of sin imaginable. It should bother us. It should offend us. And rather than sort of go on the war path against those people, God has told us that we are to proclaim the gospel to them. John Patton was like this. Some of you are familiar with John Patton. You've read the stories or the biographies. He was an 18th century Scottish Presbyterian missionary to the New Hebrides Islands among the Azari people. He was disciplined by his, discipled rather, by his father, a powerful man of prayer, and was called to missions as a child. His church back in Glasgow did not want him to go and he was doing a significant work as a missionary there among the poor, but he knew that God was calling him and so he went. He arrived in that place and the natives were all heathen. They tried to kill him for years. The stories are just unimaginable. They surrounded his house on many occasions, chanting and yelling all night while sharpening their knives, literally. His wife died in childbirth and shortly afterward the baby died and two missionaries who came to help him died of disease. He was constantly sick, sore and running for his life. Again, literally running for his life on the island. But still he stayed and as he stayed, he clung to the presence of Christ. He fixed his eyes, his heart, his mind on Jesus and with nothing else to depend on, began to see the powerful reality of God's presence. Listen to his words. After the measles epidemic that killed thousands on the islands and for which the missionaries, by the way, were blamed, he wrote, During the crisis, I felt generally calm and firm of soul, standing erect and with my whole weight on the promise, Lo, I am with you always. Precious promise. How often I adore Jesus for it and rejoice in it. Blessed be his name. Without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior, nothing else in the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably, he says. In his words, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, became to me so real that it would not have startled me to behold him as Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene. 
I felt his supporting power. It is the sober truth. And it comes back to me sweetly after 20 years that I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smiles of my blessed Lord in those dread moments when musket, club or spear was being leveled at my life. Oh, the bliss of living and enduring as seeing him who is invisible. One of the most powerful paragraphs in his autobiography describes his experience of hiding in a tree at the mercy of an unreliable chief. By the way, you younger guys, if you think following Jesus is boring, you just need to go read the autobiography of John Patton. Not boring ever. You'll wish it was boring at times reading the autobiography of John Patton, but you should go read it anyway. Um, It describes him is hiding in a tree at the mercy of an unreliable chief as hundreds of angry natives hunted him for his life. What he experienced there was the deepest source of Patton's joy and courage. And he writes this, being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, because the chief had said that he was his friend and then came and attacked him with the whole village. I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages, yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul alone, all alone in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? Most of us would not know the answer to that question. Most of us have never put ourselves in such a position that we are completely dependent on God. We have our parents, some of you, our families, our bank accounts, our salaries, our doctors, our entertainment to ease our painful days and sleepless nights. But if you put all of that aside, your Netflix, your Amazon Prime, your cable television, ESPN, in just the moments of quiet, you put all of that aside, do you know that you have a friend like that that will not fail you. A friend who laid down his life for you. And if that is so, then can you respond in obedience and courage like John Patton did? Because if you know he will be there for you, then what is stopping you? Some of you that maybe are holding back from fulfilling God's calling on your life, what is stopping you if you know that he will be there for you? If your answer to that question is, Yes, I know that I have a friend who will not fail me then. Why not? If death can't separate you from him, why fear it? Why fear anything at all? Why not serve and give and lead and go? And fulfill the calling of Christ on your life. These are the kind of questions that we ask ourselves and one another when we are sober minded. When we put it all aside and consider the word of God and the God revealed within, it is sobering. And it will not, he will not leave us the same. Which is why, quite frankly, some people don't like to consider these things. When church is over, let's be done. 
Because really, Roger, you drove all the way up here and you're just getting a little too serious. It's Christmas time. We've got leftover turkey in the fridge. We just want to go Christmas shopping and enjoy ourselves. Can't we just do that for six weeks out of the year? Right? Some of you maybe are thinking. Consider the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. It reminds me of the song that we just sang. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go. And that, friends, is the last word that many of us want to hear. We don't plan to go any further than the mailbox. This is it for us. This is what we know. It's what we're comfortable with. And we, we do not want to consider anything else. Don't even mission, mention missions to me. Right? Wherever that may take us. Uh, many of us don't want to do that. We're, we're afraid of what we might find, what he will ask us to do, to be or to give up. But if you will fix your mind on him and your eyes on his word, you'll find that he is all you need and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, by the way, I'm not so focused on missions. You know, our our day to day, we don't I don't tend to think about as much things that are happening in far off lands. I was recently in London with my oldest son and my parents, my dad living and teaching over there. and We went over to visit them. And um, such a diverse city, such a big place. And when you go on a trip like that, it causes you to think more about God's work in the rest of the world. But I don't live there. I live here. I live in Maine. And um, it's not a very diverse place. Um, and, uh, and we pretty much think about our community most of the time. But when I, when I speak of missions and fulfilling God's calling on your life, I'm not so much talking about going overseas, though certainly some are called to that. I'm simply talking about the fact that we live in a state where most of the people here do not know Christ. And there is much work to be done, even in your own community. Whereas I understand it, there may be a handful, three or four churches max for sure, uh, in, on the whole island that are proclaiming the gospel. And no more than that, and a great need for evangelists right here. So please understand that in light of the word Missions, But this is my invitation to you this morning. Put aside all the other things. Turn your phone off. Get alone with your Bible. Uh, get alone with God in prayer and listen, not for five minutes or 15, but at least for the length of your favorite never miss binge watch TV show. Do this and you'll find it meets a need in your heart that maybe you didn't know that you had. Do this and you'll do it again. And if you make it a habit, you'll never be the same. Many of you know this. You do make it a habit and you have never been the same since the time that you started and perhaps the world will never be the same either and God will be glorified. 
By the way, after many years in the islands, John Patton, having outlived two wives and many co-workers, left to go speak in churches and raise up missionaries. Because you see, by this time, he was a hero in churches all over the world. Um, Every native person on the island that he was aware of at the time had come to know Jesus. Every native person on the island at the time that he was aware of had come to know Jesus. Isn't that a remarkable statement? I wrote that down. I can't really say it without thinking what a remarkable statement that is. Every native person on the island that he was aware of had come to know Jesus. And today in Vanuatu, which is what we call that place now, even still over 70% of the population identifies themselves as Christian. That is not the case here. That is not the case anywhere in any state in the United States. Because, I believe, part of it, because John Patton set his mind on God. Because he was sober-minded and set his mind on God. And so I would ask you, are you sober-minded or silly? Do you know more football stats than scripture verses? Not, not the litmus test, but maybe a good indicator in this season. Are you living your life for Jesus? Is the Holy Spirit convicting you even now? I want to pray with you and ask God to show us how to be sober-minded. When I come back in a month, we'll, we'll tackle the rest of the, um, the thing. Some of you are already planning to be on vacation on the 31st. <laughs> if I see you down in Booth Bay, I will know that you came, you came down there just to skip and go on vacation. <laughs> you show up at our church, I'll see you in the community, and you'll be like, hey, oh, hey, you know, hey. Um, but please don't be, be with us. Um, I promised your pastor I would keep this on the forefront and judging by the hymn that you picked, which I didn't know in advance that you were picking, but judging by the hymn that you picked to follow this sermon, that is what he was expecting, um, is that I would keep the banner of mission flying before you. And that is something that God has called me to do. So let's pray and ask God to show us how to be sober minded yet filled with joy and hope that is winsome to those around us who need Christ. And let's pray that those that we see at Christmas tree lightings, at shopping areas, at community events, and family gatherings over the next few weeks, uh, that God might grant us openings to share the gospel with those who need to hear it. It's a very real thing, very real opportunity in front of us this time of year as people are humming all those Christmas hymns to simply say, do you know what it means? Do you know what Silent Night is referring to? I'd be glad to explain it to you. What a great entrance. What an easy entrance is that song is playing, you know, on the loudspeaker or in their car or they're humming it under their breath or whatever. What a marvelous opportunity God has given us right here in this place in this season. Let's pray. Father, This is a time of great celebration and it's always been a difficult road to walk, the balance between sober-mindedness and serious joy. That we would be people who know how to celebrate and be glad in You and not give in to the false piety of stoicism or somberness. Some people adopt that attitude thinking it makes them appear more spiritual. Some people adopt that attitude because they are afraid to be joyful or they don't really know the gospel or have anything to be joyful about as far as they know. God, you've called us to be glad in you. And this time of year, we should sing loud praise 
This time of year when people invite us to their homes to sing songs about the gospel, to carol, do Christmas caroling and all kinds of things that recognize you and we can put things in packages and wrap those packages in pictures that tell the Christmas story of the, our gladness of the coming of Christ and share the gospel with them in many, many ways. God, we want to celebrate. We want to be people who cannot be silent about the goodness of this story and the ones to come. Most importantly, the story of your death and resurrection. We want to be people who delight in these things, that the delight would be evident on our faces and that people would come to us because unlike many this time of year who are depressed or down in the mouth because of loss or difficulty, even because of the weather or the lack of light, that we would be joyful people who are winsome and people would come to us and shake their heads and say, what is wrong with you that you are acting this way at Christmas? It's so stressful with the shopping and the family and all these expectations on us. And we are able to say with our great delight that we are glad in you and we want to be those people. But at the same time, God, would you help us to be sober minded that we not give in to the frivolity of the moment, to stuffing ourselves and our, our stockings. Uh, Lord, that we wouldn't be so caught up in, in all the rigmarole of this season that we would lose sight of what it means. God, that as we are talking about thanksgiving and people are saying, I'm so thankful for this and that, that we would simply ask them the, the great follow-up question, who are you thankful to? Because so many people acknowledge Thanksgiving and don't acknowledge the one who clearly is responsible for all of our many blessings and all good gifts. And so many people acknowledge the Christmas season without acknowledging the Christ for whom it is named. What an incredible opportunity we have before us. And Father, my prayer for this church, since I live a long way from here, but I know this to be a church that proclaims and sings and preaches and teaches and prays and delights in the gospel. Lord, that you would give them a great, great passion and a great discipline of, of sober mindedness that they would be systematic in sharing the gospel with the people of this area. And that many would hear not only the Christmas story, but Lord, the gospel truth and would delight in it as well. And would see the truth and that the truth would make them free in Christ and they would be glad in you for the first time and forevermore. God, that's our prayer. That's my prayer. That's why I'm here. It's why I came this morning. That would be such a wonderful thing to see. And I know that it is occurring with some in this congregation and yet others this morning are convicted that maybe it's not happening with them. And that's not a part of their Christmas celebration is to share the gospel. And so I pray Father, that it would be out of the overflow of our hearts that our mouths would speak and out of the overflow of our delight in you that we would speak of you. So God, give us that. Grant us that. Grant me that as we go back to the Booth Bay region that we would do the same. I, quite honestly, at times would rather be in the wood cutting firewood. I love it. I love being out there. I love the first snowfall and all of the food and all of the things that go along with it. God, remind me to so delight in you that I would go and find people to tell that to, to tell about you that haven't heard yet. That I would be looking into faces to see if there are some who have not yet heard that I might be the first one perhaps to tell them of my Jesus. Do that, Father, for me and for your glory.
that you would be glorified in our lives and in the lives of those who have not yet heard you, but we pray will hear of you and delight in you as well. So that's my prayer. And God, um, as we close the service in just a moment, if there are some here who still don't know that delight in you, that all of this is just by rote for them or is just some thing that they do, part of the tradition of like singing Christmas carols. It, it doesn't really mean anything to them. They come and perhaps they, they darken these doors and they doodle till it's time to go home and then there's just no relationship with you at all, God. If that's the case with some of these, that you would show yourself to them mightily. Reveal yourself to them in all of your radiance and all of your glory that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for your sake. Amen.